Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Okay, so it's the week before Christmas. Yay! <laughs> it's Advent, and we just finished this amazing series on Revelation, right? It was thick, it was juicy, it was meaty, it was all those things. And now, <sighs> take a breath. Yeah? Okay. Um, it's Christmas time, and it's a time full of celebration, right? full of joy, full of hustle, full of bustle, but we just sang a song about comfort and joy, right? And where there is comfort, there is an implied need for comfort. Am I right? Yeah, so why is that? And what do we do with that this Christmas time? So Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. It's the time that we remember and we celebrate the arrival of Jesus as the baby born in a manger. And because we just came out of Revelation, we know that we're in this Advent time. Advent means waiting, where we await with hopeful anticipation for his return. We don't know when it will be. We don't know how it will be. But we know that we have hope and that he's going to one day return and set things right in the way that they were intended to be. So I heard someone say recently about Christmas, when we think about comfort and this need for comfort that we have and joy, Christmas time with all of its glitz and sparkly lights and celebrations and all the things that we um, have to do during these, this time of year, it often shines a light on the things that are not. It often shines a light on the unmet expectations that we have and the things that are really hard in our lives. And so when we sing about comfort and joy, we're asking God to bring us comfort and bring us joy, and we're asking him to show us how to hold space for both of those things to be true at the same time, right? I heard someone say recently that even the wise men had to walk through the dark in order to follow the star. So even for us who might find ourselves in a dark season, may we today find comfort in the words of God and comfort in the story of his birth to know that his light still shines in the darkness and where we look, we will find it. We're going to look closely today at two birth stories, the story of Mary and Jesus and the story of John the Baptist and his mother Elizabeth. We're going to see how they're intertwined together. And we're going to, um, to see really Mary and how she, as a human being, embodied everything that we just talked about and learned about in Revelation. How she embodied what it is to be human and also have divine joy at the same time. And we're going to look at the, the story of John the baptizer and his mother and see where those things can be found there as well. Now, if you're a mother or you know a mother, you know the one thing that's really true about us women and our motherhood journeys is that we really like to talk about it. We really like to share our birth stories or our adoption stories. And I'm talking from conception sometimes to like the birth and after the, all the things in between. And you might be someone who um, 
gets a little squeamish when we talk about these things, but for women, when we get together, we, have, we don't hold anything back. We hold nothing back on all the details. There have been, you know, so much, there's been so much ink spilled for women to read about what to expect when you're expecting and all the stories that come with, with childbirth and what to know about childbirth. There's been blogs, mommy blogs, Instagram feeds, all kinds of stuff that, that places where we can go and share our stories and hear other people's stories. Why? Because having a child is scary as all get out, and you have no idea how it's going to go or what it's going to be like. And at some point, if not throughout the whole entire time of preparation, you are in great need of comfort, right? And you are in great need of assurance. You need to hear other people's stories to help calm and alleviate your fears. And I think that's what happened when these two women got together, and we're going to see that later on. Now, when we, when we think about Mary, and we, we, we begin to see her in this story, through her birth story, we, we can actually, not just those of us who have given birth or who are mothers or who have adopted children, we can all, men, women, children, the childless, and those who have children, we can find ourselves in her story. We can identify with being fearful and perhaps not feeling worthy of God's attention or his favor. And I think many of us have in mind a picture of Mary. Stop for a second and think about, like, what painting comes into your head when you think about Mary? Or what picture that you grew up with? Maybe you grew up Catholic and you have all kinds of icons and images of Mary in your head. But she has been the subject of so many paintings throughout the centuries and different artists' renditions. And most of the time when we look at her image, we see something, someone who's meek and mild and docile and pure. She's the epitome of the gentle and quiet spirit that some of us never attained. You know, I mean, it's, she is the picture of womanhood, right? But if we don't look carefully at what the pages of Scripture actually tell us about Mary and her story, we might miss the fact that underneath all of that gentle and quietness was a revolutionary ready to take on all the injustices of the world around her. She was probably 12, 13, 14. She was um, a nobody, really. She had, we don't know anything about her particular lineage. The lineage that we read about in the Bible about Jesus is all Joseph's. So she was a woman of no consequence that lived in this town called Nazareth where someone later on says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? She was a nobody girl in the back country by herself when the angel appeared to her to tell her what was going to happen. And then she becomes this woman that we know of, that God chose, who will be remembered for generations as the person who bore the living Christ. In Luke 1, Mary sings a song that's called the Magnificat, and it's the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. For most of us, we maybe grew up learning the first few lines. They're very familiar to us, but the rest of the poem, the rest of the song, is not really something that's familiar to a lot of people unless you come from a tradition that recites it regularly. So Luke 1, verse 46, it begins with the Magnificat. Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord or magnifies the Lord in some versions. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. 
From now on, generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Most of us can get with that, right? Most of us know about that. We've heard that before. Um, we've heard it in prayers. They're full, th- these are lines that are full of praise and joy. But the next few lines in the Magnificat take our image, these precious images that we have of this fearful and obedient young girl, and they show off her edge. Mike was saying we should should name this sermon Smells Like Teen Spirit, because she has this like edginess to her that comes through the rest of the song. Here, the Mary that we know of that's quiet and contemplative, that ponders all things in her heart, she speaks out from this place of joy, but it's not just joy, it's joyful resistance. She says in verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever and ever. So you know that song, Mary, Did You Know? Guys, I think she knew. Based on this, I think she knew. Because these five sentences are written in this tense that they sound like past tense, but in the original Greek, they're not actually past tense. They're in this special tense in Greek language that, that shows something that, that might have happened that isn't into its completion yet, or that might be repeated, or that might be continued. It speaks to what God has done and what he will do. It's timeless, it's transcendent, and that they're praising God and prophesying at the same time. They're proclaiming this joyful resistance because they sound confident in what God will do, and at the same time, they're comforting because she knows it's not going to be easy. Lots of times when someone has a prophetic word or they speak prophecy, it's about something that God will do in the midst of something that's really hard. And that's why when we know we've received a prophetic word, we hold on to it because it really cuts to the core of where we are. And so while Mary acknowledges in this in the song, she acknowledges power and its misuse, hunger and need, God's faithfulness and the mournful history of her people, her song sings of a type of divine reversal of social order that we began to understand when we studied Revelation the last few weeks. That God, Jesus, is going to come and reverse the order of things and turn the kingdom upside down. The lyrics of Mary's song sing not only of these new creation dynamics that were initiated by the birth of Christ and the beauty of the coming kingdom. They speak of the moral and political and social revolution that comes with the king that she's going to give birth to. Listen to the words again. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. This speaks of a moral revolution. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. This is a political revolution. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. This is a social revolution. 
He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So if we take everything that we just learned in Revelation about Jesus, the slain lamb, who's also the conquering king, we can see him through the words that his mother sang over him in her womb. We can see the favor of God toward her was not just for her in that moment, but for all her people. For the promise that, that God made to Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing and all the nations will be blessed because of you. This is a promise being fulfilled all the way back to Abraham, she says. Now for many Christians and many different traditions, the Magnificat has been a part of, of, of church liturgy for centuries. There's people in different parts of the world and different, I have a friend who's Anglican here and he recites the Magnificat every day in his prayers. In the, in the book, The Daily Office, if you're a liturgical prayer type of person, it's in there for evening prayers every day. But throughout, throughout history, it's also been a really controversial prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned um, and eventually executed by the Nazis, he was a pastor and a theologian. He called the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say, the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. And in fact, in the past century, there were at least three separate incidences in India, Guatemala, and Argentina where the reciting of the Magnificat in public was actually banned because the people in power were fearing what it would stir, stir up with the people that they were oppressing. It was too subversive, they were afraid. So throughout human history, since we've had this poem, the poor and the oppressed have found have found joy and hope in this song. They've found comfort through this song. They've clung to it and identified with Mary's words of hope that essentially proclaim the mercy and justice that comes with the arrival of Jesus. The Magnificat has brought comfort and joy to people for centuries, but it's not the kind of neatly packaged joy that we like to see at Christmas time in Hallmark movies. It's the kind of joy that doesn't escape reality. She knew. If you listen to the words, she knew that all those things, if they were to come to pass, they would come at a great cost. In fact, later on, she's told by another prophet that a sword will pierce her own soul. This is a kind of joy that isn't afraid to ask questions or sit in the unknowns. It understands the price of pain and still chooses to say yes. So to further understand this Magnificat and to really know and get Mary and get where she was coming from when she sang it, we've got to go back in the story a little bit and read about John the Baptist's birth story and, and, and how that connects to Mary. If we look at the two parallels, both John the Baptist and Mary were both born to women who were very unlikely to be having a child. So if, if we were picking teams, none of us would pick Mary and Elizabeth for team savior and team forerunner. It just was not the likely choice. At the time of these two births, 
these are some things that were going on in Israel. It was a difficult, difficult time. People were struggling financially. They were struggling to get food to their families. They were feeling unsafe. They were um, experiencing, experiencing oppression and violence and political upheaval. People were fighting for survival and worried for their safety. Many people were under crushing amounts of debt. And it was a highly patriarchal culture where men were revered and women were just seen as property. So John's mother, Elizabeth, was married to a priest named Zechariah. And Luke tells us that they were both righteous in the eyes of God. This is really important because at the time that this was all taking place, there was a lot of corruption in the priesthood. So Zechariah was identified as someone who was righteous, and so was his wife. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless, it says, because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were very old. So at the time that it was customary for a priest to go into the temple and burn incense, Zechariah is chosen by lot out of all the other priests to go in and burn incense and offer prayers. So we pick up the story in Luke 1, verse 11, where an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, we don't actually know if he was there praying for his wife to have a baby because he was there on behalf of all of Israel. It could have been that he was there praying for deliverance for Israel and maybe throwing in his own personal prayers. But as we can see, both are answered. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is along in years. The angel Gabriel says to him, do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you're going to be silent. You're going to be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were, were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had had a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. While, at this time, while his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Some people say Elizabeth got two pieces of good news that day. Baby and quiet husband. <laughs> but I, note, I want us to notice a few things in this passage, okay? Notice Zechariah's response to the angel. First of all, he was gripped with fear 
just by seeing the angel. Also, this announcement, compared to the, what we know about the announcement of Mary, and we'll see in a, in a couple minutes, this announcement was made in a place of prestige. The temple was a highly, highly regarded place. Priests were highly regarded people. So this is a very different scene than the one that Mary has. Zechariah's response to the announcement is, how can this be? It's full of doubt and unbelief and uncertainty. The question itself lacks faith. It lacks belief, which proves that even the most righteous of us can have unbelief, and still God will act on our behalf. It doesn't matter how faithful we are because God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God will still be faithful and act on our behalf. Gabriel tells Zechariah that the baby will be filled with the Spirit before he's even born. That's really important to hold on to. And then notice, in contrast, Elizabeth's response, which is full of faith, marveling at God and his favor over her of not only giving her a child and taking away her disgrace, because women in those days, if you were barren and childless, you really had nothing to offer the world. And so God had taken away her disgrace of being childless and gave her this child. So we connect this experience to Mary. In verse 26, the story goes on. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. The announcement to Mary, in contrast to the prestigious place of Zechariah, she was in a small, poor, village town. She was an unknown woman of no consequence. This is showing us how God already chooses the lowly to bear his greatness. The reversal is already happening. Mary wasn't startled by the angel. She was greatly troubled at his words. So immediately, Gabriel told her she was highly favored and that the Lord is with her, and he repeated it. He said it twice, giving her the reassurance that she probably really needed to know that God is indeed pleased with her and that he, she is seen and held in this monumentous task that he's entrusted to her. Her question how will this be, 
is laced with a little bit of uncertainty, but also with belief. How can this be versus how will this be? How will this be? I mean, she had some questions, right? I mean, she's a virgin, engaged to be married. Who's going to explain this to Jacob? The angels got to have some more to say about this, right? So Gabriel explains that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, that the, that, um, the Most High will overshadow her, providing her the miracle of his birth. But then he immediately draws her attention in a comforting way to another miracle that's also happening with her cousin Elizabeth, who's said to be unable to conceive in her old age, but is in her sixth month. And then he declares by showing her this thing that she can actually go and see and touch and experience in her life, declaring to her that no word from God will ever fail. I wonder how many of us are comforted when we know that someone else is experiencing something similar to us. Or when we are going through something really, really hard and someone sees us and believes us and understands the thing that we're going through. And I wonder how many of us, how often do we actually trust the word of God will not fail us? Because clearly you can trust that in the midst of some uncertainty. Are we able to hold space for both? And don't we need people to remind us of that? Don't we need people to remind us that the, the word of God that spoke creation into being has this word for us that will not fail us, that the word of God revealed to us in the Bible that shows us who Jesus is will empower us to live and do the hard things in life? I mean, isn't that really why we come here on a Sunday morning? I mean, Maybe some of us are watching the World Cup in here right now, but some of us stayed home. I mean, we don't have to come, right? But we come because there's something in us that knows that we need to be with other people who are going to speak truth to us, that are going to speak life over us, that are going to tell us the truth about God and about ourselves when we need it. And finally, Mary's response was that of surrender, of full allegiance to God and his will when she says, may your word to me be fulfilled, as in whatever God has in store, regardless of the humiliation and the rejection that's going to come, the disgrace that's going to come, she was willing to allow God's purposes to happen. And even though she was ready and willing, she still needed more. Because the next verse tells us that at that time, in verse 39, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary makes haste to get to Elizabeth. So we're talking about a young, 
unmarried woman betrothed to a man. Essentially, she belongs to this man already. And she takes off by herself for 100 miles to go see her cousin. And she ends up staying there for three months. So maybe she had to see for herself in the midst of her obedience, in the midst of her faithfulness, in the midst of her trust, maybe she still needed to see for herself that this was true, that Elizabeth was really pregnant. Maybe she had to find the one safe person she could talk to about her situation and all of her fear and all of her angst. Maybe she had to find the one person who would believe her. Maybe she needed some assurance Maybe she needed some comfort and that at least one person in her family wouldn't reject her. The night of Jesus' birth, when we read the story and we hear the words, there was no room at the inn. We're not talking about Bethlehem was impacted with crazy crowds that night and there was no hotel rooms available. There was no room in the inn speaks to the fact that Mary and Joseph went to the town where David's family lived, where he was from, and there was no room in the inn because nobody wanted to welcome them into their home because they were a disgrace. She was unwed and pregnant. That's what no room at the inn is, but Elizabeth believed her. Elizabeth blesses her. We're already seeing the reversal of social order. Notice it says that she enters Zechariah's home, but because he can't speak, it's Elizabeth that shows up to greet her. Elizabeth welcomes her. The man of the house, the one who's the priest, is not the one who blesses her. The wife, Elizabeth, bestows blessings upon Mary. And she's not told. I mean, Mary doesn't show up and say, guess what? I'm pregnant. She's not told. But we know that Mary, or Elizabeth, is the first person in the New Testament to show that she's filled with the Spirit. And somehow the Spirit empowers her to know what's happening. The Spirit opens her eyes and makes her aware and makes her rejoice in what she sees and makes her believe what's in front of her. Blessed is she who has believed. And so it's from this place that Mary's able to sing that Magnificat. It's from this experience and this reality that Mary was able to face her life and the hard thing that God was requiring her to do and step into it with that kind of bold courage that she can sing, beginning with, my soul magnifies the Lord, and also these kingdoms are going to fall because of this child. So how does Mary's testimony, how does Elizabeth's testimony, how does it bring us comfort and joy? Because this Christmas was about the beginning of a revolution. Our Christmas has nothing to do with revolution. <laughs> you know, our Christmas has to do with getting things done and busyness and craziness. But what if, we, what if we were looking for comfort and joy and we found it in the places where we see God is reversing the order of things? I think we see it tomorrow night at Room in the Inn when this room is filled with people who are often disregarded and left alone in the cold, but they're here for a warm night of sleep and a good meal around a table with people who want to give them dignity and see them as image bearers of Christ. That's the kind of revolutionary stuff that Christmas is about. 
But Mary's testimony also brings us comfort because what's being asked of her, the cost of her yes, shows us that it's possible to be full of faith. It's possible to be righteous like Elizabeth. It's possible to be completely aware of God's promises and still need to be comforted by the presence of God and by the people of God who will speak life and truth to us about who God is. Last week, I was chatting with a good friend of mine who's a therapist, and she said, this time of year for therapists is like tax season for CPAs. Everybody's coming in because the holidays and all their bright and cheer, beautiful cheer that they have to offer, like I said, shine a light on our discomfort and the pain that we might be experiencing in our present circumstances. So in these Adventy days, when we have to show up to the Christmas parties and bake the cookies and go to the school parties and buy the gifts and, and you know, make all the treats and all the things, for many of us, there's a low hum of something that bumps up against our joy. It could be a low hum of sadness, of loneliness, of fear or shame around our circumstances. So I wonder, how do we invite God into that space where our need for comfort and our desire for joy, our desire to choose joy, coexist? How, how do we invite other people into that space? I mean, Mary traveled 100 miles to find Elizabeth to tell the one person she knew would be safe and understanding. Guys, it's so important that we go to the Lord with everything that we are, that we show up to God in our honest and truthful ways. And it's also important that we tell another person, that we're talking to another person or a small group of people that we can trust and feel safe with about what's really going on with us. For some of us, this Christmas is the first Christmas without a loved one. Or, in the back of our minds, we wonder if it's the last Christmas with a loved one. Some of us, it's our first Christmas not feeling like we need to have it all together. For some of us, it's our first Christmas that we're sober. For some of us, we're wondering if our family is going to show up this year, if our loved ones are going to come, and, and what that will be like. And for some of us, we're wondering how we're going to make ends meet how we're going to feed our families, much less buy all the gifts and, and do all the things. The magnificent Magnificat reminds us that rejoicing in the midst of struggle is an act of hope. It's an act of hopeful defiance. It's an act of joyful resistance. It reminds us that joy and comfort are both available to us as we're graced with God's presence. And even though we don't get to experience God's presence in the same way that Mary did in Jesus, and we have yet to experience God's presence in the resurrected way that we look forward to, we can, because of the Holy Spirit being with us and in us, we get to experience his joy and presence now. We also get to be recipients of God's favor now. I wonder, do you actually believe that you are highly favored by God because he left his Holy Spirit with you? That is a gift. 
The Holy Spirit is a gift given to us to empower us and to help us and to strengthen us and to give us courage. And we get to be recipients of that and get to be recipients of God's favor and presence right now. So may that kind of hopeful and honest joy shape our celebrations in this next week and in the days to come. As we go and receive communion today, um, if you're watching with us at home, now is a good time to go raid your pantry and find some things that resemble the bread and the cup. But as we go to these stations around the room, we get to... Um, Every week we do this because we think it's important every week to remember this in a significant way. The bread and the cup remind us of God's presence with us, that he came as that baby in a manger, born to a woman of no consequence, to begin something that continues through us, that will come to completion at some point. But the bread and the cup remind us that he's with us now. They remind us of his presence and his love poured out for us. So I wonder if as you go to the stations today and you receive the bread and the cup and there's the white pieces of paper there also, would you take some time to either reflect there or in your seats, what is bringing you joy? And where do you need comfort? Or who around you needs comfort and joy? Where can you go to see the divine reversal of social order that Jesus initiated at the time of his birth? And who can you talk to about it? So as we sing and as we pray, may God open our eyes and our hearts and allow us to be honest and open and truthful about where we are with him in this moment. Amen.